Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and mainly history. I'm your host, Ian Saxe. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. If that line sounds familiar to you, it's from the Declaration of Independence, and that reference to burned towns is talking about Portland, Maine, or, as it was known at the time, Falmouth, Massachusetts, in what was shortly afterwards designated the District of Maine. This wasn't the first time the community faced wartime destruction. Wabanaki and French forces had put Falmouth to the torch in 1676 and 1690. Nor would it be the last. Much of Portland burned in 1866, for the first time by accident, in a blaze caused by Independence Day celebrations. Today's show is about the third fire, occurred in 1775, the last major event to happen in Colonial Falmouth before its renaming as Portland after the Revolutionary War. Why did the British single out Falmouth for bombardment by a royal flotilla? What happened the day the city burned? And what was the legacy of Falmouth's destruction? The bombardment lasted nine hours, but this intro won't. So let's do this. My guest today is Tiffany Link, Research Librarian at the Maine Historical Society. Tiffany, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you. Let's start with the basics. On October 18th, 1775, a British fleet bombarded Portland, Maine, which in 1775 was called Falmouth. Why? Why in 1775 in October? Did the British care enough about Falmouth to send a fleet there to bombard the town? So I think to answer the question, we need to back up maybe just a little bit. I don't want to give you an entire sort of colonial economics history lesson, but I think it's important to understand the boycott situation that was happening and that that was in effect because colonial economies were just so dependent on their mother country. And so I think we forget that colonies were sort of around to supply whoever their mother country was with natural resources. And then they would in turn buy goods back from, in this case, England. And there wasn't really a lot of industry or uh, ways to purchase ready-made goods that didn't already come from England. So a lot of things were just going back to benefit merchants in England. The economy was centered around benefiting the mother country. And we, of course, saw that there were reactions to this when there was like the Stamp Act or the Townsend duties uh, that had been going on for quite some time. And then there was the renewal of that after the Tea Act, where they were basically making it so that a few people would have a monopoly on selling tea in the colonies, which was a huge commodity at the time. So there had been the Boston Tea Party. And then the reaction to that, of course, was uh, the course of acts in Boston, which effectively shut down the port. So kind of in reaction to that, the colonies were starting to have these mass boycotts or non-importation agreements 
they hadn't quite come to the point where all of the colonies had agreed on one together, but the Provincial Congress in Massachusetts had sort of enacted a policy that would gradually, between June and October of 1774, end the use of all British goods in Massachusetts, which at the time included Maine. Right, much a- as modern day Mainers might lament that yes. <laughs> Maine was a part of Massachusetts until 1820, everybody, just yeah. a reminder. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at the time too, I guess I should say that Falmouth was what is currently Portland, Westbrook, and then present day Falmouth. So what we're talking about in terms of Falmouth is, is really what's present day Portland, but it's really just the peninsula portion of Portland Hmm. at the time. There were settlements uh, on the outskirts, but the town itself was really focused just on the peninsula and kind of the middle to eastern end of the peninsula was a a little more heavily populated than the western. And so these boycott agreements were kind of contentious even in Boston, and they were definitely not very popular in Maine. Uh, Maine was still very much frontier territory, even to some extent it's coastal towns. And so survival here was a little bit more tenuous than some other places. And, you know, the choice between having the one sort of trading partner you have cut off and having that affect your family and your livelihood was not always a super easy decision for coastal towns. You know, at the time, technically being a, a colony, you weren't really supposed to trade with other countries. And so if you couldn't trade with Britain, then your income source would be drastically affected. So coastal towns in Maine had a little bit harder time coming to terms with these agreements and supporting them than inland towns did, who had a little bit less to lose and maybe kind of saw coastal towns as already being a bit too big for their britches, if you will. Um, Are we saying coastal elites? Yes, yes, Ah. that's a good way to put it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so some of the leading towns at the time that were really making more noise about this were Gorham and then um, Brunswick and Topsham and and certainly others, but those were kind of three of, of the big ones and certainly the ones that are involved today. So beginning in the, you know, late summer to fall of 1774, some of these inland towns were already sending small militia parties to coastal areas like Cape Elizabeth or Scarborough um, to kind of do some what I'll term mild harassment, especially relative to what had been going on in Boston and what happens a little bit later uh, along the Kennebec to sort of make sure that these merchants are abiding by these non-importation agreements. And in this environment, Samuel Thompson of Brunswick flourishes. Uh, He is the leader of an inland militia unit in Brunswick. He had become an important figure in that town. He had gradually gained real estate over time. He owned a local tavern, um, which was a site of a lot of revolutionary activity. And at the time of the revolution, he had become a selectman, a moderator and militia officer. Uh, He was a delegate to the Provincial Congress and also um, the Cumberland Convention, which was kind of like the decision-making body, elected decision-making body in Cumberland County. Okay. And um, so both sides, revolutionary and loyalists, kind of described him as a bit of a hothead or full of patriotic zeal, I guess, depending on which side you were on, but certainly saw him as a, a man who would take action if needed. And in the fall of 1774, armed mobs under his direction went to several towns like Wiscasset, Palmerborough, 
um, I think Georgetown and then eventually Falmouth. And, and they got pretty violent in trying to force merchants in these areas to sign these non-importation agreements. Like uh, I think there's one story where he made a man dig his own grave and stand in it and threaten him. And then at the last minute, let him go. And it's more just for show. Oh, wow. uh, but, you know, things were getting a, a little bit more severe under his leadership may not be the best word to use, but supervision, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> encouragement. Again, maybe encouragement. encouragement, yes. So then uh, to, to go from these, the questions of these boycotts, if I may. So mm -hmm. I think what many people might, might want to know is, all right, so we hear that the, the fighting part of this Revolutionary War, it starts in April of 1775 at Lexington and Concord, and then the Continental Army forms and surrounds the, the British Army in Boston, led by, at first, Commander Thomas Gage, but then later Lord Howe. It seems like a lot of the action is going on around Boston. So then you would think that maybe one of the advantages of living on the main coast is that you are less likely to be, for example, bombarded by the British Navy. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And some <laughs> towns were saying at the time, I remember reading something that our, uh, to the effect of like our remoteness is our salvation. Uh -huh. um, so absolutely. And, and like I said, you know, a lot of main coastal towns were not leaning as heavily revolutionary as some coastal towns in Massachusetts, like Salem or Marblehead or certainly Boston, because they were maybe kind of make, having to make these harder decisions about what's best for their families versus what's best for their liberties. So, you know, it wasn't an easy decision for anyone, but there's some reasons why main coastal towns maybe weren't as defined as revolutionary as some Massachusetts towns okay. were. And that was certainly the case in Falmouth. And what kind of set things off in Falmouth was the fact that there was a merchant who was violating these non-importation agreements in March of 1775. And uh, his name was Thomas Colson, and he was building a ship in the harbor and a another ship had arrived with supplies um, like sails and things that weren't readily available in the colonies had arrived from England so that he could finish the ship. It was nearly complete. But by the time it got there in March, the Continental Congress had enacted what they called the Continental Association Agreement, which was basically all 13 colonies had agreed to non-importation across the board. They had done that in the fall of 1774. So that had been going on for like, let's just say like six months at this sure. point. And it was very important that all 13 colonies held to this agreement because if one didn't, then, you know, their unity was shot. Basically, they all had to stand together. Yeah. And, Boycotts um, didn't work if there's. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So when the ship arrived with Colson's supplies, the Provincial Congress is writing to the selectmen in Falmouth, the town council, and they're saying, the eyes of the world are watching you. You cannot let this ship unload and, and have Colson's ship completed because it will violate this agreement. And in effect, that means Massachusetts has violated this agreement. And if Massachusetts of all places can't even hold to this agreement, what is that gonna do to our cause at large? Like you, you can't let this separate us from the other colonies. And I'm sure other people were violating the agreement, but you know, with Massachusetts kind of being the leader of the movement at this point, it was important that they of all people uh, do their best to comply. And the townspeople don't really know what to do. There are some, certainly some loyalists who are 
in the upper echelons of the Falmouth society and in the council. And Colson says, well, whether I take the supplies or not, the ship just really needs to unload and do some repair work because it, it can't sell back to England the way it is. So why don't you just let it unload its supplies, do the repair work, and I'll load it back up and we'll send it back. And so that's kind of the agreement that's made. And in the meantime, Colson also writes to Admiral Graves in Boston, who's overseeing the British Navy. And he says, I need help. I have this ship. I have all this money sunk into it. I really need to finish it. It's nearly done. And I, I can't unload my supplies and use them safely. So Graves sends Captain Henry Mowat and his ship, the Canso, to Casco Bay to kind of maintain order because things are getting a little hot under the collar, if you will. Mm. And so he gets there. And during the time that he's there, things get worse because by that time, Concord and Lexington has happened and news arrives and the customs officials who are appointed by the British government get worried. They're taking refuge on Moet's ship and people in town start panicking, thinking that there might be retribution from this British ship in the harbor. And they start packing things up and trying to move their families. And so it's, it's a little bit of, of chaos. And in all this chaos, with the Canso present keeping him safe, Colson definitely uses the supplies to finish his ship. And the town doesn't really do anything. There's no retribution. There's no attempt to stop him. There's no militia intervention or, or anything like that. And so Falmouth loses a little bit of face in its revolutionary cred, if you will, mm. uh, you know, for, for doing nothing to prevent this. Mm. Also, right around this time, the Provincial Congress reaches out to Samuel Thompson and says, there's a mast agent in Georgetown, Edward Perry, and he is getting ready to ship a batch of masts to England, and we want you to go stop him. So Thompson gets there, he delays the shipment, and right around this time, news arrives there of Concord and Lexington. So the town decides to take Perry into custody at this point because the mast agent is a crown appointed position. So they take him in and Moe arrives and he is going to kind of address the situation, get Perry out of custody, preferably get the mass shipped off. But Thompson says, why don't we use Perry as sort of a decoy or a lure and take the canso. I'm not exactly sure how he thought they were going to use Perry to take Moet's ship, huh. but <laughs> that, that was his plan. Okay. And he's there with his very rowdy group of militiamen, again, from out of town, you know, not the Georgetown militia, but from Brunswick. And the Georgetown people say, no, we, we are not going to do that. That's crazy. <laughs> And, and they stand up to him. I mean, even in the face of, of, like I said, his rather rowdy militia that has gained quite a reputation at this point, and they just put their foot down and they say no, the situation dissipates and Thompson kind of limps off, a bit of his reputation bruised and without his prize, which is the canso. Oh, they, they shoot him off. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Effectively. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and his job was done. All he was supposed to do under orders from the Provincial Congress was to stop the masts from being shipped off. Um, and I must confess, I'm not really sure what happened after that, but they obviously didn't take the canso. And Moet, 
at this point makes let it be interjected here that you and i agreed before the show we don't know 100 percent how this british navy captain uh, his rank is lieutenant at the time but still henry you call him moate i thought it was moat we couldn't find it and we don't know the haters can come (laughs) after me and, and blame me on this uh, and I probably say it differently depending on how fast I'm talking to these so. 18th century <laughs> pronunciations and names. And, you know, I don't know. I've never heard of this. And so I thought it was Moet. You think it was Moet. It's fine. The more the merrier. But so let it let it be known. I'm sure I'm sure I'm going to get some <laughs> some fan mail. So yeah. he so they shoo away Thompson, who mm-hmm. uh, interesting. OK, so I'm guessing that Thompson does not take this well. Uh, no, and I, like I said, he he really wants to, you know, he says he's good, but obviously uh, having the reputation that he does, it probably doesn't set well with him that he didn't get to carry out his full wishes and, and take um, the Canto and its captain. So he kind of goes off, the Canto returns to Casco Bay and is still kind of assisting with the the situation with Colson's ship at this point. It had kind of taken this little detour up, you know, towards the end of April to kind of put matters to rest in Georgetown. And so then it comes back to Casco Bay. In the early May, Thompson also shows up in Falmouth. Uh-huh. And while Moet is taking a walk uh, with one of his officers and a local preacher, Thompson captures him. And the town immediately panics. His second-in-command, Moet's second-in-command, threatens to bombard the town. The town tries to call up the militia, but they are not to be found, mostly because a lot of them have already left to go down to Boston to the Cambridge encampment, but also a lot of them are also panicking and trying to get their families to a point of safety, and so they're just sort of unavailable. And what they were really hoping is that the militia would not defend the town from the Canso, but that the militia would put pressure on Thompson and his men to release Moet. And so when they can't do that with a Falmouth militia, about 600 militiamen from other towns, mainly coastal towns that can kind of sympathize more with Falmouth, not like your inland towns, they show up and they put the pressure on Thompson to release him. And he does. There's kind of a weird caveat that two sort of prominent men in Portland have to sort of stand in for him and that the captain's going to return the next day, which Thompson knows isn't going to happen. And it definitely doesn't happen. But why is the, so the captain, are they worried that they want him to be captured by official continental militia or something like that? And Thompson is a a loose cannon and they don't want him to. I'm not really sure what the, um, I must confess, like, I, I don't really know exactly what the point of the agreement was because everyone knew that they just wanted Thompson to release Moet. They didn't want him captured at all because they didn't want to bring down the ire of the British government onto Falmouth when they had been trying to walk this very fine line between loyalists and revolutionaries for quite some time. I'm glad that you bring this up because it's really important to remember that this is, you know, in the spring of 1775, yes, there's an there's an open war between these various colonists and the and the crown and parliament, but that nobody's officially declared independence yet and that the, yeah. the legal status is uncertain. And so, yeah, there's plenty of killing that's it's being done on, on both sides, but many people disagree on on what the the sort of proper bounds of actions there are to take uh, in terms of when and where to fight, uh, which just adds to a whole lot of confusion and arguably bad decisions all around. 
Very much so. And I mean, we're only, this is like May 9th or so. And, you know, we're only what, 20 days off, not even a month off at this point from Concord and Lexington having happened. So, and and even less time between when they, you know, word of Concord and Lexington got to Maine and this event is occurring. So that notion of taking action to this extreme is pretty new at this point. And the town officials are writing to the provincial Congress and asking them if they asked Thompson to take this move. I'm not really sure if Thompson tried to tell them that, or if they just were aware that the provincial Congress had sent him with orders to stop Perry at Georgetown. And we're assuming that maybe something similar had happened in this instance, but yes, the confusion was high, you know, like who's acting under whose orders and what exactly is going on? Who do we believe? How far do we push this? And what's really best for us as a town, you know, like, yes, we value our liberties, but Falmouth was very small at that point. It was only about 2000 people. And that's probably a little on the high side. So there are probably about 160 or so families on the peninsula. So it's it's a little place. So like a, a big event like this and, you know, stopping their trade, which everything kind of revolved around either shipbuilding or trading or fishing or maritime endeavors. Was, was a pretty serious deal for them. It's a good point. Yeah, they were really trying to sit on the fence and not be too one way or the other. And they really felt that this capture of Moy would really not be good for them in the long run. So they were, Makes they sense. just wanted him released. They just wanted him to go back to a ship and leave. And so Thompson said, fine, like, uh, I'll let him go, but you have to have these two sort of prominent individuals. I think one of them was Jedediah Preble, uh, stand in as like sureties and he has to come back tomorrow. I'm not really sure why, but everyone knew that that wasn't going to happen, including Thompson. But then he could kind of put the blame off on the merchants again as kind of being the bad guys and the elite. So Moet leaves, he goes back to Boston the town of Falmouth profusely apologizes. They put all the blame on Thompson and make Oh, him- so they apologize to the Crown, not to yes. the yeah. not yeah. to the Continental Congress. Okay. Correct. No, okay. no, no. Yeah. They <laughs> profusely apologize to Moet and personally. And they put all the blame off on Thompson as an outsider and a this country instigator and he doesn't really have anything to do with us. He doesn't speak for us. Like, we're really sorry that this happened. And Moet's response is basically, no problem. I forgive you. I understand. Everything is fine. I um, do not believe him. I do not believe him. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Well, that's Don't believe him, Falmouth. <laughs> they did. They unfortunately took him for his word. So he leaves. Um, and then in June, the next month, There's an incident in Machias where some British ships are actually taken by the town militia, and that does not go over well. There had been an incident there where a town merchant was agreeing to sell lumber, firewood, to Boston in exchange for provisions, because like we've said, Boston is basically under siege. The British are in Boston. They have nothing, like they don't have food, they don't have firewood, they can't really go out into the surrounding towns because... They're surrounded by tens of thousands of militiamen and Machias being a more rural uh, or frontier coastal community, they need some basic provisions that the British can provide them. So they instigate this trade. The town does so reluctantly. They don't like the deal, but 
they know it might be the best thing for them. So Admiral Graves sends three ships, including the Margareta, up to Machias, and they're supposed to help facilitate the move of the firewood back to Boston. The militia shows up, led by Ichabod Jones, the merchant who set all this up, his business partner, actually oh. the militia. <laughs> <laughs> so just to show like how contentious things could be, you know, I mean, this was really, civil war might be an extreme term, but you were really yeah. not always in agreement with your neighbor or even your business partner or your family. Um, so Benjamin Foster and then Jeremiah O'Brien, who's famous for other things, they kind of lead this militia effort. And that's a whole nother great podcast in and of itself. So I won't get into it, but they <laughs> they end up seizing the Margareta and the other three ships and they kind of make them into this little defense flotilla for Machias. And that does not go over well with the British, as you can imagine. And at that point, Graves says, my moderate policies haven't worked. There is this continued rebellion along the coast of New England that apparently can't be met with anything else but force. And around this time also, he receives information from the Admiralty Board in England that says, by all means, take really strong action against these towns that are in open rebellion. And so he singles out several towns. It includes like Marblehead, Salem, Gloucester, Cape Ann, Falmouth, and of course, especially Machias. And then there's a few right. other places as well. So Moet leaves Boston on October 8th, and he sails north and bypasses a whole lot of towns on that list. And it's assumed he's heading straight for Machias because they need to have an example made of them, obviously. But there's some bad weather along the way, and he has to kind of take some safe harbor around Booth Bay. And he is there for a few days to a week, maybe. And then he decides to just head back to Falmouth. And... To settle a score with his yes. former kidnappers. Right. And I mean, we can't say for sure, but we can assume that the reasons were were probably personal. Did um, he ever admit to this? I know that there that he's left various evidence. Do we? Yeah, I don't know that he's ever come out and said this is why I went there. Okay. But he had a lot of other options. <laughs> he had a lot of other options that were towns which had taken a much stronger stance against the crown, particularly like Salem and Marblehead and obviously Machias. Salem and Marblehead, there's some other reasons why th those might not have been the best targets, including how close the ships could, the British ships could get to the shore and especially to the settlement areas. And some of these towns, their settlements were more spread out. So like the houses or the businesses weren't close mm -hmm. enough together to actually burn or be worthy of bombardment or have bombardment work the way they wanted it to. And then there, there was the bad weather along the way as well that kind of made some other towns not such a good option. Okay. So he could say it was for a lot of reasons, but to pick a town that had really taken no military action so far at all, I mean, yes, they had sent militiamen to Massachusetts, but there hadn't really been an incident there mm -hmm. other than the one he was involved in, which was relatively mild. I think we can make, right. probably make some assumptions. <laughs> so he shows up there on, on October 16th and the townspeople notice him and they send out some militia to sort of see what's going on. They assume that the flotilla is up from Boston and that they are looking at the islands in Casco Bay to see if there are any livestock that they can effectively steal and take back to Boston. Because again, the British have no food. 
they have no firewood, they're right. kind of in bad shape. And so colonists at the time would put their livestock on islands to protect them from predators and let them graze without having to put up fences and things like that. So the British would often go out to these islands and steal the sheep or pigs or whatever happened to be there. But when they got out there and they saw that it was Moet, they were pretty excited because they were like, oh, he's our friend. He forgave us. We have an understanding. (laughs) You know, like like this is no big deal. So I'm guessing, so the militia just sailed out in little skiffs or something? Yeah, I I think that they would have taken small boats um, or gone out in that manner. There had been a couple of militia scuffles prior to Concord and Lexington or right around that time, maybe just after down in Boston as well, where they had just taken out some small boats to kind of confront the British that were approaching these livestock islands. So not a huge number of, of people, because again, a lot of the main militias were operating at a lower capacity because so many people had left to go to the encampments around Boston. Okay. And so they, again, are relieved initially to see that it's the Canso, but Moet tells them not so fast. You have two hours to evacuate, and then I'm going to start burning the town. And they take this news back to the town council. There's, of course, a panic, and people immediately start trying to pack things up and get their families out. The town sends three representatives to the Canso, and they kind of work out this deal where if the town will hand over all of its firearms, that Moet will write to Admiral Graves and say, can I please just get confirmation that this is really what you want to do? And really the town assumed Graves would say yes, but they (laughs) wanted to buy more time. (laughs) Um, So the town says, you know, all we could round up on this short notice is, is 10 firearms Here they are, take these as a promise, and we're going to have a meeting tomorrow morning to agree to hand over the rest of the town's stash, and then you write to Graves and we'll figure this out. And Moet says, fine, I will do that. You have until nine o'clock in the morning to get back to me. But in the meantime, there's so much panic and chaos and people are stealing carts. They're using everything that's movable to sort of get their goods packed up and try to transport them out of town. Presumably the British can see what's going on. As- oh, I would assume. Yeah. Yes. I, you know, I don't know how yeah. far off they were, but there weren't a lot of trees or anything like that on the peninsula at the time. So, and I'm guessing Falmouth doesn't have any like cannons or anything that's capable of shooting back at the British fleet that would make them want to be farther out. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, They did have some fortifications that were coastal in some of the earlier incidents that you mentioned in the 17th century. I don't know how well those were fortified at the time, but obviously not well enough to concern Moe or his other three ships, I think, that he had with him at the time. And even if they did, probably couldn't have held them off for long. And it doesn't really sound like there is anybody around to man those. (laughs) Everyone was kind of, you know, every man for himself in terms of saving what you can from your home. Not, uh, I mean, because Portland today has some old forts out on the, on the island surrounding the city, but these are all built after the Revolutionary War. Yeah. A lot of them are uh, more like Civil War. Right. Some are War of 1812, but certainly not at this time. 
right. at all. No, those islands, if again, would have been more like the islands that the British yeah. would have been looking for hogs or right. cows on. So yeah, that's, that's not a thing at this point. And so I got to ask, as these people are evacuating the town, mm-hmm. you're saying he's threatening to burn the town. How flammable is Falmouth in 1775? How many buildings are, you know, brick versus mostly made of wood? It would have been almost all wood. And we're talking like little one to maybe three story houses and mostly close together, mostly close together. Yeah. Uh, There wasn't a whole lot of settlement on the Eastern prom, like sort of the Eastern cemetery to the water was not very populated at that time. And so a lot of it was more sort of like Eastern cemetery towards the neck. And again, kind of getting more sparse as you approach the neck of the peninsula Uh, And a lot of it was towards the water. It was also relatively flat. Poor Falmouth was actually a very ideal place for bombardment. Everything was relatively close together. There weren't a whole lot of trees or other things like that to sort of impede the incendiary shot. You could see basically all the houses. The houses that were closest to the coast weren't so large that they overshadowed the houses behind them. So you could easily, you know, fire over them to get further on like sort of the other side of the peninsula. So they were not in a good position in terms of. Oh, right. And most of the home, most of the structures uh, then in the, in 1775 were, yeah, facing like on the old port side rather yes. than, mm-hmm. rather than backhoe. So today yeah. where the old port and some of those terrible, terrible clubs are, uh <laughs> then was sort of prime area where people were living, correct? Yeah, that would have been much more prime. Like uh, where the Longfellow house is, so Congress Street, that's sort of getting towards the other side of the peninsula. And actually, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but Cumberland Avenue, which runs behind the Longfellow house uh, parallel to Congress Street, that would have been where Back Cove started at that point. Okay. The water came up that far. And so it was basically like Congress Street down to Commercial Street was where your settlement would have been. And it would have been kind of from the Eastern Cemetery over to like, again, for simplification, we'll just say sort of like, like High Street kind of would have been where, um, or maybe even state like where you started to see things get a little bit more spread out again. So yeah, everything. And there was maybe like 130 or so is like the number they say of, of houses that were actually destroyed, which the contemporary statements say is two thirds to three fourths of the town at the time. So yeah, everything was pretty close together, wooden structures. I think the Longfellow house is the first brick structure built in Portland, which was 1799. Uh, don't admit that I don't know that precisely, but <laughs> that's not a lot of brick or stone structures at that point. And very flammable. Ideal, if you will. (laughs) Ideal, yes. Okay. Okay. So he makes these threats. Everybody's fleeing. So then what happened? So did he just sort of open up then without? Yeah. Yeah. At 940, no one had gotten back to him. Additionally, with all the chaos of people trying to leave town, a lot of militiamen also arrive from other places. And it's a lot of other places and they don't really seem to be under one leader or even really have a clear purpose for why they're there. And they aren't really doing anything either. They aren't helping. They aren't threatening the British. They are just 
around and kind of causing trouble. And so in dealing with all of this, the town never meets. Like, are they looting or something? Not yet. Uh, Or maybe a little, but that doesn't... (laughs) Just a little. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But stay tuned. Um, So, yeah. And they certainly aren't aiding in the situation. And in all of this chaos, the town does not have its meeting. They do not get back to Moet. And at 940, he gives the signal to start the bombardment. And so it lasts from 940 in the morning until six o'clock at night, which seems like a pretty extended period of time. Yeah. We talked about the structure. So can I ask, so he's got uh, this small flotilla of of ships with with a number of, of cannons. Most people, when they think of naval weaponry, they think of cannons shooting cannonballs. But what would this British force have had that would be capable of of starting fires that would burn down a community like Falmouth? So it basically would have been like cannonballs, but also with explosives. So uh, they would have been, again, maybe an oversimplification, but like an exploding cannonball. And there are actually cannonballs from the bombardment that you can see in the chandeliers and I think the sconces at the first parish church. So which was one of the few buildings, not quite as you see it today, but one of the few buildings that was not destroyed at the time. So yes, there would have been incendiary shot that was fired into the town. And then when that wasn't doing things quick enough, Around three o'clock, I think, in the afternoon, Moet sends Marines into the town to expedite factors, and they start setting fire to buildings that had not burned otherwise. Moet says himself that this is because there are a few armed men who are putting forth such an effort in putting out the fires that started from the ship bombardment that he has to send these people ashore. Hmm. There are other accounts that say no one was doing anything, (laughs) that all the militia and armed men that were in the town were doing nothing but looting. But apparently there were enough that were putting out enough fires that it did require the use of on-the-ground Marines to sort of finish the job. And there was some scuffling, and I think a couple of them were wounded. No one died, and they went back to their ship after they had succeeded in setting more of the town ablaze. And around six o'clock, I I guess Mo was pretty satisfied with what he had done. He was also completely out of ammunition. And I would imagine how much ammo does it take to burn down a whole city? That that seems for, you know, nine, 10 hours, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean, yes, he did bombard the town for nine hours. But on the other hand, he gave them a 40 extra minutes. So, I mean, come on. True. And I mean, (laughs) I I like to think he put this in his report. Like, I mean, I gave them an extra 40 minutes. So Mm -hmm. what do you mean about harsh? Yes. And there's a letter that he wrote to Graves that sort of explains his situation, which we have a copy of in our collection. And and he puts it that way. He's like, I waited until 940. And then I gave the signal. Mm. (laughs) It's like, good for you. Okay. So yeah, that was, I mean, effectively that was it. And most of the houses were burned. Everyone was displaced. Some people already had somewhere to go. Others Was there anybody, sorry, you mentioned there were Mm -hmm. a few people hurt in the, in the sort of skirmishing, but so presumably everybody was able to get out of town though. So nobody died in the house fires or anything like that. No one died as a direct result of that situation. Okay. There's one person 
maybe Daniel Tucker, I could have the name wrong, who's buried at Eastern Cemetery, who might have, he certainly witnessed the events, but no, no one died. They consider it to be no one died during the event. I guess we'll put it that way. Yeah. Uh, this Tusker guy, he's like a special case. Like he was eaten by a bear in the woods while he uh, was hiding. Yeah, from I wanted them. to say like he died later from some injuries, but I, oh, okay. now that I'm t- starting to say that, I'm not even really sure if that's true. But okay. he certainly witnessed some of the events. We have some of his writings or some of his account is known, but, but no, right. no one died that day. Okay. Um, yeah. The people who leave, where do they go and how long before they, they come back? A lot of people in Portland also had property elsewhere. So like Wyndham, Gorham, sort of the Sebago Lake area, uh, Hiram, you know, people had farmland property out that direction. Uh, And then some had family, some went back to Massachusetts if they had, you know, recently come from there or had family there that they could go to. Others were pretty displaced. A few people kind of stayed in town. They did still have town meetings here. The First Parish Church, like I said, was still operational, I guess, if you will. There was a tavern, Greeley's Tavern, that was still standing. And a lot of the town business sort of took place there after the bombardment. But there wasn't really settlement in earnest as there had been before until after the war was over. So like in into the 1780s. Okay. Um, so but for most point, of the war, the town was largely abandoned? Yes. From what, from what I understand, most of the town was largely abandoned. And then after the war, people start to come back pretty quickly. And a lot of people who had been here before return, new people come. And so the population gets sort of back to normal um, pretty quickly. It doesn't take too long. But I think... Again, being in a more remote area, not having a lot of resources at your disposal, being in wartime, realizing just how vulnerable the town was to attack. I don't know that people thought it was a great idea to sort of rush mass resettlement. I'm making a large assumption on my part, but I'm not sure that resettling this peninsula was the best idea in that environment. Hmm. Also, having been burned two times before, yes. <laughs> you know, so I, I think proceed with caution was probably the word of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like I said, a lot of people still had a vested interest in Portland, but they just were at other properties or the properties of, of family members. Right. Do neighboring communities respond with like mutual aid? Is there like fundraisers or any kind of, you know, charity or outreach mm-hmm. on an organized scale? No, not that I'm aware of. It, oh. just, it wasn't really like a situation like Boston where people were still there and suffering, like uh, when the Port Act was put into effect in, in 74 and they effectively couldn't trade or fish and you know communities came together and they sent mass quantities of food and tried to send assistance and organize these mass days of prayer and fasting, but there was no one here. And so like, where do you send aid and, and things like that too? Like everybody was pretty dispersed. There may have been some efforts, but there really wasn't like a community to send aid to, if that makes sense. Okay. The reaction was also a little half and half. There were a lot of loyalists who felt like Falmouth got what it deserved because they were too revolutionary. And there were a lot of revolutionaries who felt like Falmouth got what it deserved because they weren't revolutionary enough and they should have stood up. Yeah. So immediately after people were kind of like, like, what did you expect <laughs> on both sides? But then people started to realize more what had happened um, and sort of how non-confrontational Falmouth had been. And of course, 
propaganda comes into play and they start touting Falmouth as this poor civilian community that was attacked for basically no reason. Other towns along the coast really start to beef up their defense. A lot of coastal towns had little to no defense at that point. Why would they need it, you know, really prior to the revolution? So they start outfitting more like probably merchant vessels and things like that uh, with guns, like essentially privateers, or start beefing up their works along the waterfront and being more prepared for these things. And, you know, the whole point of this was that Graves and the Admiralty Board wanted to crack down on the revolution and make an example of these towns and kind of cower people into submission. And really, it had the opposite effect. You know, like, like I said, the initial reaction was sort of like, especially locally, it was kind of like, well, you know, you got what you deserved one way or the other. But more broadly, and, and later, they used it to their advantage to kind of unite the colonies against this horrible atrocity that had been committed against like a civilian population, essentially, which yeah, was there's actually- the, there's the line in the declaration of independence, which, absolutely, which yeah. our audience heard in our introduction, he has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burned our towns and destroyed the lives of our people. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, they're really talking about Falmouth. So right. Charlestown also burns, but that's during an active military engagement. So it's a little bit different than the British just coming upon a town and burning it under orders without any real provocation. They don't burn any other towns where the Falmouth is the last. <laughs> so mm. that's for a variety of reasons. One, I think they pretty quickly realized that it's not having the effect that they want it to have. Two is that Moet himself couldn't continue doing it because he was so low on ammunition. One of his ships was badly damaged because it was a merchant vessel that had been outfitted with guns and cannon. And it Uh just couldn't take the constant. I mean, it's very jarring to a ship when cannon go off and it, it was not built to handle that being a merchant vessel. So it had to go back to get some pretty extensive repairs his, it's a lot of recoil. Yeah, a lot of recoil, especially for six hours or nine hours, right. you know. And quite a few of his crewmen were also getting very sick because they had left without adequate provisions. They had left Boston very quickly. I think in his letter to Graves, he says that his men only have like one change of clothes. And so because they've been living in them and sweating in them and it's damp and gross, um, that they're getting very sick and they just like really aren't fit for duty any longer. He had three men desert when they went, a- went ashore to finish off the burning of Falmouth. One immediately surrendered to the militia and said that he would gladly serve on the American side. And I guess the other two just left. Yeah, where did they go? That's weird. Because I mean, they're in a town that's <laughs> no. now burned to the ground. Yeah. So- <laughs> okay. Yeah, so. Does anybody know what happened to these two? Well, I- the source that I was reading mentions it and then it mentions sort of immediately after that they went to North Yarmouth and kind of took up there again, maybe with the militia, but it was a little unclear if they were talking about a different incident or if they were talking about these two individuals, but only one person is sort of documented as like immediately surrendering to the militia in Falmouth and pledging his services. But all three of those men had been pressed into service. I mean, the British Navy was not, the British army was not an awesome place to be, no. uh, but probably the Navy might've been a little bit worse. So. so in terms of the British response to this, that was really interesting how, you know, many Americans are, are sort of, you know, 
thinking that Falmouth deserved it one way or the other. Do the British, is, is Mowat largely congratulated or is he reprimanded for overreacting? What's the kind of response that Mowat gets to, to his punishment of Falmouth? Yeah, he's definitely not reprimanded because he was doing exactly what he had been sent to do. I mean, really, under the orders, he should have systematically gone town by town and destroyed every one of those towns. It wasn't like destroy these towns if they resist you. It was these towns have been singled out as being an open rebellion. Go destroy them. It seems like he kind of messed up then because he shot away all of his ammunition on just Falmouth. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he had already passed up a couple of towns, like I said, for various Mm. reasons. So he may have come to the conclusion that his orders as they were given to him couldn't be carried out the way they were expecting. So he may have thought, I've got to go back to Boston anyway. He may have heard more stories about what was going on in Machias as he was heading up the coast. I mean, they had at least three ships at this point um, that they had taken from the British, along with probably some other vessels that they had outfitted at that point. So Machias was pretty well defended. And so while I'm sure he would have loved to have gone up there and sought some revenge, he just may have known, especially the further up the coast he got, the bad weather that they had been dealing with, that might not be a super viable option without heading back to Boston first and maybe getting some more manpower. Okay. Um, I don't know. Like, again, I'm making some pretty broad assumptions, but sure. there may have been reasons why he assumed that using all of his ammunition in this one scenario would fit with the scenarios he'd already encountered. Besides exercising his personal demons. Exactly. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, bonus, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so. Hires all his ammunition into <laughs> Falmouth and sales home. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, you know, yes. Yeah. You know. Okay. Probably don't get a lot of perks, so right and where you can, I suppose. Well, his career after this incident, which is his real kind of, you know, date with history, as far as I know, was there any other distinguishing features of his career? Well, he continued to patrol the coast. He, before and after, was sort of going after smugglers. That continued even after the revolution. He kind of was in Canada, you know, looking for French smugglers. He was involved in the Penobscot expedition. So again, like that's another whole podcast if you want Uh (laughs) want another one. Um, But he was one of the, I think his flotilla was the first to kind of arrive in the area and start to hold off the colonial forces. So, you know, he was stuck around and was certainly a bit of a thorn in the side of the naval operations during the revolution. And then afterwards, again, he kind of was still patrolling the coast and he eventually died in the late 1790s, I think off the coast of Virginia. And he's actually buried in Hampton. Oh, okay. I think he had a stroke while he was on board one of his ships. So he stayed in the Navy. He did stay in the Navy. Yeah. And the British reaction to the bombardment was mild. Initially, when they heard the reports, they thought that it was a lie. They thought that it was colonial propaganda. I don't think that they thought that their government would do that to a civilian population. But then when they found out it was true, they were sort of like, well, you know, they probably really did do something to deserve it and no big deal. So it it just didn't really make a big splash in England one way or the other. Again, in terms of Moet's career, he certainly wasn't reprimanded. And the choice to not continue with those orders was for a number of reasons. One was that they had really discovered that some of the towns just weren't very viable for coastal bombardment. Falmouth, like I said, was ideal for many reasons, but places like Marblehead or Salem or even like Gloucester to some extent, which were far more revolutionary, 
really weren't set up to be bombarded by the coast as easily. And then by the time he got back and really was able to get, would have had time to get re-outfitted and maybe get some more sailors who were in better shape and things of that nature, Admiral Graves was dealing with a whole other set of problems. The colonial forces around Boston were growing. Washington was actually starting to get some naval forces of his own in the area that were maybe not causing a lot of problems, but certainly harassing the British Navy uh, around Boston. And then also by that time, the propaganda around Falmouth and what had happened was so bad if you were on the British side that they decided that perhaps all of these reasons made it not in their best interest to continue with the, the orders to bombard coastal towns in uh, rebellion. So there's a number of reasons they didn't continue on. So with regards to the other kind of instigator, Samuel Thompson, mm-hmm. did the residents of Falmouth blame him for his role in this sort of, oh, you jerk, if you hadn't gone and kidnapped Moet, we wouldn't have been attacked? Yeah, that's a real, I'm not really sure. I've never okay. seen that in anything, but that's a good question. I, and what happens to him? Well, he goes on and lives like a pretty okay life. Uh, he okay. becomes at least a state representative. I mean, still a well-respected citizen and holds office and does okay for himself in right. those terms. You know, certainly not, I mean, like any person in a position of political power, I'm sure he had his detractors, but obviously enough admirers to stay up there too. So okay. <laughs> yeah. So with regards to the the main character in this affair, the the city itself, my final question of legacies is when the modern day city of Portland takes its name in 1786, why do they choose to name themselves after a feature, a geographical feature in Britain? Why wouldn't they choose a name like Phoenix, maybe, you know, like, because we're the, the Phoenix City, right? Or, you know, some rising from the ashes. Or why wouldn't they choose something like Liberty or, I don't know, anything to do with the fact that we were burned down by the British, so we're not going <laughs> to name ourselves after somewhere in England? Um, that's a great question. I have no idea. Other than maybe they were just being a bit literal and that was their <laughs> most prominent feature, you know? I mean, they were a port town. But I, I couldn't say. I don't know. I'm not even sure if what other names were proposed. The Phoenix is on the city seal. Um, yeah. So this so... is why I thought it would be a natural name for the yeah. city. <laughs> and then maybe, you know, the eventual uh, monstrosity in Arizona wouldn't have taken that name. And it would have just <laughs> referred to the, uh, the place in Maine. True. Yeah. That, that's a good question. I should look into that, but I don't have a ready answer. It's okay. I'm a librarian, not a historian. That's my... <laughs> oh, well, you are. <laughs> That's my disclaimer. <laughs> scholar of many talents. <laughs> so speaking of your, your own work, people looking for firsthand artifacts or items in the collection relating to the destruction of Falmouth, what could they find in the collections at the Maine Historical Society relating to this event? Sure. Probably... Our most uh, sort of touted item that relates to the event is Stephen Longfellow's journal. This would be Stephen Longfellow II. And he just kind of simply records on the 18th that the city of Falmouth was burnt. It's pretty, it's a one line, half a line, really entry. 
And uh, that's kind of that. There's an image of it on the main memory network. So if you go to mainmemory.net, you can find that item. We have several other items on the main memory network that are related to the event, namely some letters. The letter from Moet to Graves is there. Uh, I think it's a manuscript copy letter, so not Mm -hmm. maybe the primary document. But that's there as well, where he kind of describes his actions. It's very non-emotional. It's very just, you know, this Mm -hmm. is what I did, uh, kind of a report to your boss sort of thing. And we have a copy, a manuscript copy of Graves's orders, which precipitated the whole thing. There's a few letters on there, also of people's personal experiences, which are pretty interesting to read. And there's quite a few, three or four, I think, renditions of what the town looked like at the time of the burning. So there aren't There's a really a of... popular one that's sold. I, I have it hanging in my It's probably the same room, one, actually. Sure. <laughs> the one that uh, Falmouth Neck, as it was in yes. October of 1775, I think it was drawn in the 1850s or something yes. like that. Yeah, there's um, no, unfortunately, there's really no good 18th century renditions of what Portland was as like a street map type, type of situation. We have one that kind of reflects the early proprietors of the area, which would have dated to the 17 teens. So after they were coming back after the 1690s fire, but that was made in, I think, 1773. So there aren't really a lot of contemporary maps that show the peninsula prior to the 1830s or early 1800s. So yes, there is the map you're speaking of. And I think there's like four different renditions of that same map on the main memory network. One of them is colored. And then there's a few others that are sort of engraving copies. Does the museum have any items in its collection relating to this event or revolutionary era exhibits and content? Yeah, the best thing to do um, to always see revolutionary content would be to visit the Wadsworth Longfellow House. Peleg Wadsworth, who is Henry's grandfather, was heavily involved in the revolution and particularly the Penobscot expedition. Um, so there's usually always something of his on display in the house, either like a hat or a sword or a gun. Um, we kind of rotate out what's there. There's also a lovely cheese wheel holder that was used at the dinner honoring Lafayette when he came to visit Maine in the 1820s. Oh, I want to see the cheese wheel. So Yeah. Yeah. So we, we kind of rotate those things uh, out through the house so that they don't get too much time out and about just for their preservation. But certainly something like that will always be on display in the Longfellow house and has really great provenance and a connection to Maine and the family and to Portland. So that would be the, your best bet. And then our main exhibit gallery, we rotate what's in there once or twice a year. So depending on what we're focusing on and the time period involved, you know, there may be something in there as well. And you can always check our catalog online through our website, both our library catalog and our museum catalog and reach out to us to make appointments to see anything where you feel like the pictures won't do it justice. So, yeah. Great. Some of my favorite pieces, if I- Oh, go ahead. We do have some of George Washington's hair. which was sent to one of Peleg's daughters who convinced her father to write to Washington's widow, Martha, after he died and ask for a lock of his hair. And they did that and it it was sent to them. So lots of places claim to have Washington's hair, but we can sort of track ours with confidence. Uh Um, We also have Benedict Arnold's letter book of his journey 
to Quebec. So another great Maine revolution story is how Arnold took <clears throat> a trek through Maine in 1775 to go and, and try to take the city of Quebec. And so we have that here as well. And then we have a lot of other really great items, but those are two of my favorites. Okay, great. Thanks. So what is something that you are currently working on that our audience should know about? Well, I'll definitely have to plug our current digitization and transcription project, which is available through Zooniverse. We received a grant last summer to digitize three of our most significant and two of our most, most used collections. And they all have to deal with land in Maine. Uh, two of them are the Kennebec and Pajepscott Proprietor collections. Those are our most used and then it also includes the Barclay collection, which deals with documenting the Northeast boundary of the United States. So we're digitizing every single piece of the collection. Essentially, we're cataloging each individual page, and then we are also transcribing each page. We're dedicated to transcribing 50% of the collection, but we're pretty confident with the rate that it's going, we can probably do the whole thing. And that's certainly our goal, but we've, we've promised to do half of the collection for the grant. So you can go to our website, mainhistory.org slash volunteer and find out about that. You can set up a free account through Zooniverse. There's instructions on our volunteer page on how to do that and then start transcribing from home. So we've got over a thousand volunteers at this point working on our project from all over the world. And we've transcribed, I think we're nearing 4,000 pages at this point. That's great. Yeah. And having having personally used both the <laughs> Kennebec and the Pajepskut collections, they are wonderful. They are just full of, of just absolutely irreplaceable information uh, and insights of all kinds. And yes, yeah, some of them are really fragile. So it's great when we can combine preservation with this kind of expanded access. Yeah, we're very excited. So, and yes, the access will be free through the main memory network where you can just search these individual collections by themselves. You can also search for them and find them through the general search feature of main memory, but they'll have their own dedicated page where you can just search within these collections um, by name, by location, by date. So we're working on all of that right now, but we're very excited to be able to offer these collections to a wider audience to make them more searchable in ways that they haven't been before with their keywords and their subjects. And then also being able to search through the transcriptions is I think just going to allow them to be used in ways that they have not been used before because their content is wide and varied. And as you know, so yeah, yeah we're very excited. I know that you're running point on that. So it's in good hands. Yes. Yes. That if you have questions about the transcription portion of the project, certainly reach out to me. It's kind of our only volunteer opportunity at the moment. So if you have questions, let me know. In addition to people volunteering just to do the transcriptions themselves to complete them on Zooniverse, we are getting ready to sometime this summer start training people to be reviewers of that material. So after the transcriptions come through, they do have to be reviewed and approved. So, you know, that would be great for an intern or someone looking for some more dedicated volunteer hours. That would be really excellent. So we have a few candidates so far, but great. could certainly use some more. So, great. Yeah. And finally, what is something that someone else is working on that our audience should know about? I can always put a plug in for my friend, Amy Fluker and her book on 
Missouri in the Civil War and the way the Civil War is remembered in Missouri. It's called Commonwealth of Compromise. And uh, so I would highly recommend that because Missouri's situation in the Civil War was complicated during and after um, and the way that it is remembered and dealt with immediately after the war and into the 20th century is is quite fascinating. So excellent. And I know I, as you are a, a daughter of Missouri. Yes. <laughs> you're ear to the ground on Missouri history as well. I do. And I will say, yeah, yeah. The Civil War is not necessarily my favorite part of history, but her research has been quite fascinating. And it's Again, much like with the revolution, it was not cut and dried and there was a lot of internal struggle and turmoil with people and the reaction to the Civil War in Missouri was varied for a lot of different reasons. You know, they were not really part of the South. They weren't really part of the North. They very much just considered themselves to be Midwestern. And so they really struggled with where they belonged sort of before and after. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting look at how they dealt with that. So I, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Excellent. Sounds great. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we will speak again soon. Great. Thank you. That's our show. For links to the books mentioned in this episode, so that you don't miss out on all the latest excitement, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mainly History or follow us on Facebook. If you like the show, please leave us a rating or review on your favorite platform. This helps future listeners find our show. Join us again as we look at the role of Civil War veterans in turning the main coast into the vacation destination it's known as today. That's next time on Mainly History. Mainly History.